Welcome to the second podcast on mandatory mediation. The first podcast with Jeff Shah, we looked at addressing the issue of whether mandatory mediation was a good idea or not, and discussed the, the pros and cons of that. Um, today, we want to move beyond that and assuming that it is a good idea and assuming that it will move forward here in, in, in England and Wales, look at some of the practical issues uh, that will need to be addressed uh, for it to work well in relation to the civil justice system and how uh, mandatory mediation will interface with the court system. And I'm delighted to have two guests with me to uh, discuss those issues. Uh, the first is in, in Christie. Uh, he's a, a full-time mediator uh, and barrister. Um, he was Secretary of the Civil Mediation Council, Vice Chair of the Bar Council ADR Committee. Uh, he sits on the Judicial ADR Liaison Committee as a CEDA panel member. And also, importantly for this, he was the Lord Chancellor's Policy Fellow from 2020 to 2022. And some of the ideas in relation to mandatory mediation as they're evolving, um, he has been involved in. And secondly, uh, Rebecca Clark, who was Head of Litigation at the UK Asset uh, Resolution as a CETA panel member and an IPOS panel member, full-time mediator as well, and is currently Chair of the Civil Mediation Council. Welcome to you both. Maybe if we could start off with the whole idea of terminology, because I know that's been discussed quite a lot. Um, uh, you know, the idea of, first of all, mandatory mediation. And Ian, I know you have some views on that. So you want to kick us off with the, the term yeah. mandatory mediation itself? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think there are two parts to this. There's the mediation part and then there's the mandatory part. Because <laughs> I know there's been some discussion recently about um, is mediation even the right word? People talking about integrated dispute resolution or negotiated dispute resolution, different terms to describe the process that most of us know as, as mediation. I, I think the ship has sailed on that. I know um, people often associate mediation with compromise, and that's said to be one of the things that deters people from wanting to embark on it. But I think it's such a recognized term now. Most people understand what it means. And as mediators, we need to explain what mediation is. Uh, so I think keep that. Uh, mandatory, I'm not in favor of. And let me explain why. The term that I have been using, which I think is picked up in, in the MOJ consultation papers, is automatic referral to mediation. You've got to stop and think about this, really, in the wider context of the entire justice system. So everything that happens in the justice system happens under compulsion. You know, if you want to bring a claim, you have to do that within a certain period of time, otherwise you're statute barred. You have to submit it in the correct format, otherwise it's not recognized. You have to pay the court fee, otherwise you don't get off the ground. Um, once your process has been issued, it has to be served. It has to be served in accordance with um, a prescribed set of rules. If you're the defendant, you have to get your defense in within a certain period of time, otherwise judgment is entered in default for the claimant, and so on and so forth at every stage. If there's an order and you don't comply with it, you're in contempt of court. If you get a judgment against you and you don't pay it, ultimately they'll send the bailiffs around. Now, none of these things do we refer to as mandatory. They are just the rules. And so when the government talks about embedding mediation or integrating mediation into the justice system. What I understand they're referring to 
is simply making mediation another one of the rules that you have to follow in order to process your claim. It's part of the process which, if it doesn't settle, will ultimately result in a court judgment, the way the system works at the moment. So the, the concept of mandatoriness only exists in opposition to voluntariness. And I think the whole profession, the legal profession, the mediation profession are so used to the idea of telling people, oh, this is a voluntary pro- process that they can't kind of get that idea out of their heads. So mandatory comes in, whereas if you just think it's going to be part of what you do, it's a kind of a mindset shift. You know, it's the old Einstein thing about you can't solve the problem you're in by the same thinking that got you into it. You just need to kind of put the old system to one side and think of a a new world where this is just something that you do. And in other jurisdictions where you're required to mediate as part of the process, it's accepted as culturally normal. And that is where I, I hope we're heading in the UK. And in terms of voluntariness, now we picked this up in the first podcast. We're only check, we're not, we're not talking about changing voluntariness in terms of, you know, agreeing to settle. When that's not being removed, all we're saying is that this is part of the process and you need to do do it and try it, right? Rebecca, maybe you want to pick up and maybe this leads us into, um, look at the, uh, the thoughts around the small claims mediation service, which is where the Ministry of Justice wants to start embedding this um, form of mediation. That, again, I know the Civil Mediation Council members have had some discussion around terminology in this respect. Um, maybe you want to do some thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I entirely agree with Ian. We don't talk about having to do mandatory witness statements, do we, in terms of civil procedure. Um, I think the um, use of the word mandatory is actually really helpful and we need to stop using it. It is actually used interchangeably in the MOJ consultation with automatic referral. Uh, automatic referral is the phrase that the CMC um, prefers. Um, so if we look at what's proposed, so you'll have automatic referral to mediation for all small claims under 10,000. And, and current, the current system is that you would have a one-hour mediation for those claims. Um, there, are, there are a number of mediators and lawyers who believe really strongly that a mandated mediation um, in the format proposed is not mediation as such. Um, so I think, I think some of that is around mediation being voluntary rather than, than compelled. But I agree with you, James, that it is still a voluntary process in that you don't have to settle. The outcome is within your control. Um, and, uh, you know, there are uh, some people have got issues around access to justice, which won't go into because you talked about that in the last podcast. But I think that um, the, the concern that some mediators have had is that this automatic referral will result in a devaluing of the mediation process somehow. Um, and a concern that a one hour uh, mediation is a very different beast to a large commercial mediation. And I think I think it's a valid concern, but there are two responses to that, one one which is conceptual and one practical. And you know, looking at the conceptual response, you know, mediation is a process where a third party neutral facilitates the resolution of a dispute. And we already have many different forms of mediation. 
um, even within the CMC, um, Civil Mediation Council banner. So we have, yeah, we have commercial, but we have community mediation, uh, workplace mediation, uh, project mediation, peer mediation, with this family mediation. And all of these are very different processes, but we're happy to call them all mediation because they're fundamentally facilitating the resolution of a dispute. Um, and small claims is, in my view, just another branch of that kind of tree of mediation, to take the analogy um, to its extreme. And so if we, if we accept that as a conceptual point, then really the concerns that people have around devaluing the process is around messaging and education. And I do think that's really important. And the CMC made that clear in its response to the consultation. Each type of mediation is different, and it's the users that need to understand this. So there needs to be a clear distinction between the types of service provided by a mediator in different contexts. And so users of the small claims mediation service must have a clear understanding of what the process is that they're engaging with and what to expect and what will happen and how it will happen. And the reason this is really important, I think, is that part of the driver for making the process automatic is to embed mediation into culture within England and Wales. And again, that's supported by, you know, community mediation and peer mediation. And so for small claims users to have a negative experience of mediation at a small claims level might then have a negative impact on the uptake of mediation on a voluntary basis in, in other areas. Right. So for me, it's around the education and the messaging. And I agree with you. I, mean, I think that the suggestion that it's not mediation in a small claim context is um, you're looking at it from the person's narrow prism. If you're a commercial mediator, you're used to a full day approach. Um, you know, but the issue of proportionality must come into play here. With small claims cases, we're talking about you know small values, and therefore you know um, you know the smaller version, limited time limited version, is appropriate in terms of the proportionality to the cost. Um, and, and then the issue you're talking about, Rebecca, is just making it work properly and how you do that, <laughs> which, I, which I couldn't agree with more. I mean, the only other thing to say is I think I'm right in saying that the success rate for the small claims mediation service as it currently exists is about 40 odd percent um, or, or 50 percent, I think. And you might correct me. But no, that, it's, even that's it's higher. Yeah. It? Are you talking about the, the, the small claims mediation service? Their success rates between yeah. about 60 and 70 percent in terms of cases that right. settle. In, in that one hour. But I think even more importantly, this comes from the HMCTS. It's their internal data, so it's not, they're not published statistics. But they did a, a customer uh, user survey and they had a 95% satisfaction rate. So even cases that didn't settle, people were very pleased to have gone through the process. So, I mean, this has been going for quite a few years now, and I think it's a success. And I think the proposal to extend it to the full £10,000 a limit is, you know, and make that a requirement for people to do that is just the next logical step. It's actually kind of baby steps in terms of the bigger picture that, that, that may ultimately come. But I, and I agree with you completely, James. It's, it's a matter of proportionality. I used to do those actually at my local county court before the civil service set up their scheme. And, you know, you'd rattle through half a dozen cases in a day and they would nearly all settle. And it's, you know, mediation light. You're working at pace. It's very good as a mediator to hone your skills like that. But, but I think you're right. 
purists may not see it that way. And all sorts of things went on. I remember one quick story just when I was training. I was in the room with a very experienced mediator and they were coming up to the end of the hour and there was an offer on the table. And the client said to him, do you think I should take this? And, you know, I knew from my training that, you know, the correct answer, well, it's a matter for you. I mustn't put you in it. And the, and the guy turned around and said, yeah, I think you should. And I just about fell off my chair because I thought, That's, you know, but you know what? There was like, you know, a hundred pounds between them. It was her best chance of walking away that day with nearly everything that she wanted. And it was the correct approach. It was completely proportionate to what was at stake. I can hear the purest facilitative mediators out there screaming at you at, at, at the screen or the, at the, the podcast. But I guess even commercial mediators in big cases do that type of thing from time to time. It's a matter of judgment, right? Um, so, um, and I guess the only other thing to say on the small claims mediation services, perhaps considerations about how to improve the service, you know, learning from, you know, the recent learnings over the pandemic about using video conferencing, for example, um, maybe allowing for cases which are a bit more complicated to have a little more time than an hour. So I think, you know, thinking about how the service can be improved, because as you said, it's been going for some time. I think those things are important to, to make it an even better service and have an even better chance to succeed under an automatic referral regime, I guess. And maybe then moving on from the small claims mediation service, because that's sort of the starting point, right, as under the consultation paper. The intention is for it to broaden out in time to all county court claims and maybe beyond. Um, let's picking that up uh, and it pick up the issue of case suitability and grounds for objections, because that's been discussed quite a lot. Um, and, and Ian, maybe do you want to lead us off on, on thoughts on that? Yeah, um, well, maybe I'm the purist here because I'm, I'm very much against having a set of exceptions. You only have to look at what's happened in the family mediation system with mediation information and assessment meetings. The forms that you have to fill out in order to make an application to court require you to attend a MIAM unless you come under one of a number of exceptions. And there are so many, they cover about two pages of, of the form. And they are so overused. Um, people claim exemptions for all different types of, of reasons. And it's this old thing about if there's a way of getting out of something, a lot of people will try to do that. And that is only getting out of attending a one-hour meeting to talk about mediation. It's not even getting out of the mediation itself. So I think you, you start a slippery slope. Um, I know, James, you and I have discussed this in the context of the, our response through the Judicial ADR Committee to the government's proposal and took the view, uh, which I think you have, which I share, is really the best person to decide whether a, a case is suitable and whether the parties are suitable and readily prepared and protected if there are vulnerabilities and so on, is the mediator themselves. Um, they're used to doing this in this because in, they're in charge of the process in the same way as a court a judge would see whether there were any adjustments that needed to be made, special measures, any reason why a, a hearing couldn't progress in the normal way. So I'm against um, exemptions on, on t in terms of categories of cases. And I think individual difficulties that can arise can be dealt with on a case by case basis. And again, just an analogy from the family mediation world, 
In a, so one of the main exemptions in family mediation is domestic violence. So it's where it's perceived to be unsafe for the parties to be together um, or even to attend a shuttle mediation. And in an FMC survey in, in 2018, 97% of mediators said that they felt comfortable in conducting a mediation, even where there was a background of domestic abuse or, or domestic violence. They felt capable of, of dealing with those. And when they do go ahead, again, 40% of those settle. So, you know, it's not a barrier to effective um, resolution. Um, but, so you're saying, Ian, I think, you know, the only, in terms of types of cases, you know, that, that they shouldn't be, those shouldn't be grounds for exemptions at all. And the only reason there may be an exemption is if, if there are vulnerable, particular vulnerability issues, uh, at play. And the mediators in that context are probably the best ones to make that judgment as they are you, most familiar you, with, with those types of things, right? You, you've, you've summarized that absolutely. And the, the interesting thing is in Halsey, you know, we have a lot of criticisms about that Halsey judgment, but actually at a start point, the Court of Appeal in Halsey said that there were no general categories of cases that they felt that should be exempt from from mediation. So, right. I, you know, I think they got that right in, in that respect. I know there's a tension here between allowing the court to be the final, you know, have the final say. Maybe there is a route through. And I think this is what's done in in. Uh, Ontario, under their mandatory scheme, is you can make an application to the court for reason why you shouldn't participate. So maybe there's a potential long stop there as well. Rebecca, do you have any comments on that? And maybe also you want to pick up the thoughts of sanctions for not attending you know, a mandatory mediation and how that should be dealt with. I agree. Um, I agree with Ian. And, and as does the CMC, that there should be no, um, uh, no categories of cases that should be exempt. Um, and in terms of sanctions, I think that's a, that's an interesting question. And it comes down, it, it's wider really to consideration of, of mediation. So, um, if the sanctions that are proposed, um, are dealt with in a similar way to sanctions that are dealt with, for example, not complying with court orders and not, not serving your witness statements on time, I think that's the wider question around whether those sanctions are sufficient. Um, and I think that's probably beyond the um, considerations for this podcast today. Um, I, I think one of the interesting questions is whether there should be any interrogation of uh, people's participation in mediation. So if, if you are, uh, if you are compelled to mediate, um, and it is against your will and you simply turn up and don't engage in the process, would there be a sanction for that? I think that's really difficult because mediation is a confidential process. That, that actually really is at the heart of, of mediation. And the mediator is neutral. Um, and I think once you're asking the mediator to report on people's behaviour in a mediation, it completely changes what a mediation is and the dynamic. So I would be very much against that. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that point. I mean, I think that's where you, you step over the line. And, and I, I, mean, I worked in a regime in New Zealand where under statute, where the mediator had the ability to write a report to the tribunal if they thought a party had acted in bad faith. And I have to tell you, 
all the mediators absolutely hated that rule. And, and in the years that I was there, no one, none of the mediators used it for the very reason that you set out, Rebecca. It just felt anti-ethical, if you like, or, you know, not ethical to do and just cross the line, even though we had the power to do it. So I, I agree with you. That is a difficulty on that point. At the risk of uh, being in violent agreement with you both, can I just add, add, a, <laughs> add, add, another, add another thought to that? Uh, and it's this that, you know, just as um, it's not the voluntariness of mediation that makes mediation work, it's the process itself that makes mediation work. Central to that, as Rebecca has said, is the fact that it's an entirely confidential process. So, you know, I, I don't see a scope for having these reports back. Um, I gather... Um, this was just reading an article in preparation for this, that in 2020, a high court uh, Queen's Bench master, with the consent of the parties, made an order to the effect that not only should there be mediation, but that the parties should actively participate um, and, uh, you know, went into some detail about what this duty to to comply uh, with the with the requirement to mediate entailed, and as I say, I don't know how you you could possibly report back on that. You get into such satellite issues around what constituted uh, acting in good faith. As you said, James, no no um, mediator wants to have to do that. And the other thing, I think this is a bit overplayed because there's this idea that if you require people to mediate who really don't want to, they're going to sit there, you know, lips zipped, you know, fingers in their ears. No, 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 I can't hear you. You know, we're as mediators, we're already used to dealing with reluctant participants. Actually, it goes back to this question of voluntariness. Even under the current system, people are not there to have fun. You know, it's not like a day out at the races or, you know, going to the theatre. They're, they're there because it's probably the least worst option. So they're already pretty reluctant. They're very often unhopeful. And mediators know how to engage someone in a conversation about settlement. And if you have really have a recalcitrant party who's just sitting there saying, well, I'm not going to participate. Do you know what? At the end of the day, if that's how it ends, that will be part of the 10, 20, 30, 40 percent of cases that don't settle in mediation. You know, that's not the end of the world. That's, that's what happens. But it still leaves the 50, 60, 70 percent where it will. So I, I think this is slightly overplayed. Right. And just before we move off, just in terms of sanctions, I guess the, the intended sanctions or I think the envisaged sanctions would be things like, you know, cost sanctions were applicable, strikeouts um, of actions, things like that. Right. If parties don't don't attend the mediations when they're supposed to. That, those are the sort of sanctions which I think are being envisaged. Yeah, in the same way as if you don't comply with any other rule, you know, either your case can't proceed or it's or it's struck out or there's a cost consequence to it. Yeah. And then maybe some practical aspects of how this might work. And we're only, you know, this, like here we are moving into a little bit of supposition because you know, I don't think this is picked up in any detail in the consultation papers or the policies coming out of the MOJ as far as I'm aware. But if this was to move beyond into that broad county court jurisdiction and maybe beyond, um, what about mediators and the supply of mediators? I know there's a concern about actually will we have enough mediators if this, this happens. Rebecca, what's the CMC's take on this? So 
Interestingly, we were having this discussion just yesterday uh, and trying to do some calculations um, that we have been asked to do. Um, so at the moment, there are over 700 mediator members of the CMC. Now, what we don't know is how many of those mediators work full time as mediators. And we know that there are some mediators working who are not CMC members. We also don't know at the moment how many of those members could scale up to work full time. So, for example, if you are a partner in a city law firm who is qualified as a mediator, question, is your law firm structure and management going to enable you to take on more mediation work? Possibly not, because it's not as lucrative as charging clients an hourly rate or uh, solicitor work. So. Um, our sense at CMC is that there is a huge untapped resource. There are many, many mediators going through training, as no doubt James can attest to from a CEDA perspective. Um, there are many mediators who do not have enough work, and there are many people who want to start mediating full time. Um, and it's a bit of a chicken and egg. So it's very hard to decide to become a full-time mediator when you have no guaranteed work. Um, so our, our sense is that if there was a guaranteed stream of work for mediators through this automatic referral, in, in whatever format comes out, there will be mediators who will do that. But it's quite hard to work out the statistics at the moment or do the maths of it. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree on that. Uh, um, I mean, nature, nature abhors a vacuum, right? <laughs> so, and it's supply and demand. If there is supply, then there, uh, there is demand. Sorry, then there will be supply. There may be a slight lag. I mean, I think there, if I agree with you, Rebecca. I mean, there are cedars trained over nine thousand mediators in the UK, I think, um, and many of them want more work, uh, and so they would be open to, you know, doing multiple, you know, multiple um, smaller time-limited mediations as a way of developing their practice to moving on perhaps in time to bigger cases. Or some may be just happy um, doing these types of cases as part of their work, you know, if they have, you know, if they have other commitments, but this is a way of fitting things in. Because I also think, think these types of mediations will be done by using, you know, Zoom and video conferencing as well, not necessarily always at the court or wherever. So I, I think there is a large counter-tapping group of mediators out there ready to do the work now, but clearly if it scales up further be into the county, full county court level and beyond, then, you know, more training of mediators will be needed. But that's, that, that's, that's natural and normal, and, and, and eventually you will get to an equilibrium, I think. But James, you just said you've seen us train 9,000 mediators in the UK. So, I mean, if you add that together with all the other providers and trainers, because I'm obviously, you know, the business model changed, didn't it, when... Uh, mediation didn't take off and there weren't sufficient number of mediations. People, you know, the providers changed to become trainers and, and there must be tens of thousands now who are qualified. So there's a job there for the CMC to do to bring them within the, the fold to get them to mediate. I think it's one of the rare cases <laughs> using your market analogy, James, where, you know, the supply at the moment vastly outseeds demand. It's a, it's a ready-made market, um, you know, that you don't even need to, to fill the gap. So, 
Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, what is it? It's a solution in search of a problem kind of scenario. Right. Yeah. And I know one of the things that the, the, the CEDAS mediation order is trying to get a sense of and ask particularly is, you know, mediators out there, how much extra work could you take on? So for those mediators listening who haven't completed the audit, um, please do, because we're going trying to help the MOJ get a sense of, you know, how much more work could people take on if it was offered? So to, yeah. to, give, to give them a sense of that. Maybe moving to some other points about the other thought, so assuming there are mediators, the issue of fees. Uh, and let's, for the moment, deal with fees in relation to county court claims uh, broadly. I mean, do, you, do both of you think there would need to be, a, and assuming that there's multiple providers providing you know, mediation services uh, under this uh, regime, do you think there would need to be an agreed scale of media fees for these cases, or do you just let the markets decide and, you know, it'll probably equalise out because everyone wants to be competitive? What's your thoughts on that? I mean, I'm slightly torn here because I think, you know, it, it, again, going back to this proportionality, and this arose from the concern that if you require people to mediate, you know, you can't do something that's disproportionate, and that would include incurring costs, although no one says that in relation to legal fees um, as being a barrier to access to court. But, you know, if you go down that route, then I could see there is room for having um, under a mandatory system uh, a fixed fee kind of, uh, you know, tariff according to the value of the claim, the complexity of the case, and so on, the same way that mediators currently um, rate their fees, but it'd be, you know, that's controlling the, the market. And ultimately, I would hope that that would be lifted and that there would just be free and fair and open competition. As you, we've just said how many thousands of mediators there are. There's going to be no problem in driving prices down, um, to get work. So again, it's, it's not a big problem as far as I'm concerned. I, I think the issue of fees is really interesting because uh, I think anybody who mediates knows that uh, uh, although fees are often linked to value, complexity is not linked to that value. So often the most complex cases are worth the least amount of money. Um, and also, I think when you're looking at smaller value claims, you will have a much higher proportion of people um, acting as litigants in person, so without legal support, and that will involve uh, more work for the mediator, both potentially in terms of preparation and reading in, but also managing the mediation and managing expectations. So, actually, it, it's really difficult to work out how it should work, because I think the work involved in a small claims mediation is just as challenging and, and, and difficult as the work involved in a, in a high claim value. In fact, often it's more work. Um, so, I think if we're talking about mediators being self-employed as opposed to employed by the MOJ, for example, like small claims mediators are at the moment, then the fees mediators charge have to be able to support people working full-time as mediators. Um, and I wonder if, if you look at how solicitors' fees work, for example, I'm not saying it should work this way, but, you know, solicitors are limited in what can be recovered into parties, um, but they're not limited in what they can charge. So there's so many different ways that this could uh, shake out. But I think uh, I think economically, you kind of have to link fees to um, value because it's proportionate and uh, it is what it is. But I just think it's very difficult in terms of 
the work involved. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you'll find is, I mean, just, you know, if you look at the major providers now, um, all provide fixed fee models, um, based for, particularly for the smaller value claims, um, mm-hmm. you know, which are within the county court, um, jurisdiction. Uh, and, and, you know, if you look at them all, um, they all pretty much similar because, you know, they want to be competitive amongst themselves. And I would, you know, I would imagine that the major providers will be wanting to provide mediation services under this new approach. So, you know, I think a fixed rate fee will come into this. Um, I also think we'll have time limited models to make it right, uh, to make it work in terms of proportionality for smaller value claims. And therefore, you know, mediators will be doing maybe as N said, two or three in a day. Um, and therefore the fees will be, you know, uh, in terms of a day's work, you'll do three mediations at a smaller or smaller fee to make it, make it to a, uh, up to a, you know, a reasonable fee for the day. And so I think those sort of issues are in play. Um, I think the only issue you've got to be careful about is a race to the bottom and the issue of quality. Uh, and, um, you know, if you've got this influx of demand for work, then there is a risk of cowboys or cowgirls coming in uh, who aren't suitably trained, um, haven't got suitable experience, and, uh, you know, there's no one to complain to. So I think that that is the issue when you're looking at that type of thing. So you, you don't want to race to the bottom in terms of of, of cost and therefore quality. And that maybe leads us nicely on to the issue of regulation. Just before we, just before we go there, can I just yeah. let, let my previous answer sound a little bit uh, harsh, just to, to, just to bottom this out, that also the thing you have to guard against, and this I know will be of concern to the MOJ, is the serious part about denying access to court, because if you are requiring people to pay a fee to have a mediation before they can progress their claim any further, there will be people at the bottom who can't afford that. And I would envisage some sort of remission of fees, as you do currently for impecunious claimants or defendants who can't afford court fees. So that would effectively involve the government in some sort of subsidizing so that the mediator doesn't do it pro bono. You know, they get paid a a, a basic minimum fee, but it doesn't come from the the you know the very poor applicant. Sorry, James, just to just to yeah. bottom that out. That's a good point. And one other thing we haven't discussed, and maybe we can discuss it. Maybe we discuss it briefly now. Is the issue of what what additional training mediators will need under this regime? I think the point that you make, given that that you will be dealing with more litigants in person with issues around power imbalances, issue of vulnerability, and maybe that, you know, mediators need to, you know, be you know, further trained in those issues. You know, time-limited mediation has a particular aspect, as Ian was talking about that case. Um, so I think, you know, upping the mediation requirement, the, the training requirements for mediators dealing with these types of issues will be necessary. I don't know whether the CMC or you, Rebecca, have a view on that. I agree. I think doing a, a time limited small claims mediation is a very uh, is very skillful, and it's not something I think. Well, it certainly wasn't covered on my. Um, I mean, the training I got from Cedar was outstanding, but we didn't cover that, and I don't know if it covers it now. Um, but I think whether people need additional training uh, in order to deal with those issues, or whether it's part of mediation training courses, it, it does need to be addressed. Maybe then moving on to regulation, if we can. Um, you know, clearly one of the big concerns, if you're moving to a automatic referral system where people have to mediate as part of the system, is how do you protect the disputants? And that brings in the whole idea about 
you know, what is an appropriate regulation for, for mediators. Um, I just wanted to um, talk about the idea of well, what's the harm we're trying to protect against, because a lot of discussion has been comparing regulation of the mediators to uh, to the lawyers. Uh, Rebecca or, or Ian, do, you, do either of you have a view on, on, on that? Well, yes, I, I think you're right. The risk we have to look at is what well, we have to think about what the risk is that we're trying to manage. Um, and if we're looking at regulation, the primary purpose of that is to protect mediation users from harm or detriment. And I guess we're also protecting the mediator to the extent there's a clear set of rules which can be followed and a process for resolving complaints or issues. Um, mediation differs from other services in the civil justice system because of, of the fact that the outcome is party controlled. So even where there's an automatic referral, or it's a mediation is an embedded step, the decision whether to settle the rest of the parties. And so the mediator yeah, is neutral, uh, gives no advice on the merits, no orders, no compulsion to do anything. And that's different from solicitors and barristers who are in the business of giving advice and judges who, who are arbitrators who give decisions. Um, and therefore, it, it doesn't need, in my view, the same level of regulation. And actually, the significant benefit of mediation is its ability to be adaptive. And it's a young profession and it's innovative. And I think regulation has to be proportionate to, to all of those things. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And this takes us to the sort of models which exist in terms of self-regulation. I mean, we have worked and CEDA's worked in 30 or 40 odd different jurisdictions setting up mediation. And I've worked in many of those myself. And many of those, particularly civil law jurisdictions, what they do is they have a, they, you know, they have a, a formal regulatory body which is set up under the statute with complicated, you know, with you know, set up powers. And invariably they're well poorly funded. Um, and, and it ends up being a real block. Um, in terms of the development of mediation, um, because you can't, you know, you have to go through those bodies to get people approved, mediators approved, they're not resourced, uh, and it, it just ends overly restrictive with too many rules, and the whole thing grounds, grinds to a halt. And, you know, we've had 30 years of developing mediation through letting the market do it itself and, you know, mediators engaging, and and, and now moving to, you know, the, the, the formation of the CMC and the self-regulatory approach. And it works really well. And the UK has looked at that as a model of how to do it. So I don't think we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think we should stick with this light touch regulatory approach, you know, self-regulated by the profession under, you know, under an organization like the CMC. That's sort of my view. And I think Cedar's view on that. Yeah, and I'm, do you have a yeah I'm, I'm in a similar position, but I do think there's a serious issue here. I mean, you, you started by asking, well, you know, what's the risk you're trying to manage? Well, I mean, what you're trying to do is ensure that there are minimum standards for mediators um, that are enforced. And so one of the things I did when I was chair of the Complaints and Discipline Committee at the CMC was set up an independent investigatory process into complaints against mediators, which was, you know, the beginning of some sort of light touch. Regulation. It's a very hard thing to do because we talked about confidentiality. You can't really go behind what happened in the mediation room. So it's it's a very difficult thing to regulate. Um, and the other thing you're trying to do is provide a right of redress, you know, for for individuals who feel that they've 
didn't have a successful mediation and it was the fault of the mediator. And we talked earlier about, you know, the, there are important duties of mediators covered under the EU Code of Conduct, you know, the, the duty to be impartial, the duty to maintain confidences. You can do harm by breaching those. So I do think that a form of regulation is required. I think where we're at at the moment, you're absolutely right, James, you know, what the CMC does is appropriate. But as we also pointed to, that is probably only applying in, in under 10% of the mediators yeah. <laughs> out there. So, you know, if you're not a member of the CMC, you're completely un, unregulated. So there's a problem which I think needs addressing. And if I'm honest, if uh, this takes off and, you know, mediation is integrated and embedded so that it's a requirement to do it uh, on your road to to ultimately ending up in, in court, I think the legal professions will demand no less than they have, which is, you know, a pretty tough set of, you know, codes of practice. Um, you mentioned resources, you know, the equivalent of the SRA or the BSB. And I think that will come quicker than I'd ever imagined if if um, um, automatic referral to mediation becomes becomes the norm. And I, and I, I, and I think we need to be ready and prepare the market for that and consult so that we have the right system yeah. Um, yeah. in place. And incidentally, going back to my analogy with family, the FMC has already split from its regulatory side. So the FMC is the representative side, just like, uh, you know, the Law Society is for solicitors and you have the SRA. They've now set up the FMSB, the Family Mediation Standards Board, which is the sort of the regulator part of family mediation. So it may be, Rebecca, one thing that CMC needs to think about doing is separating out its regulatory functions from its representative ones as a starting point for that. So just answering that, at one point that you said there about only 10% of mediators being uh, with the CMC, that, that's, that's not the position. So um, when we talk about mediators, there's a distinction between those who are practicing mediators and those who are trained as mediators. So the vast, vast majority of practicing mediators are CMC members and CMC registered. Um, there, there are very, there are some who are not, but they are very much in the minority. Um, the, the gap at the moment is that there is currently no requirement for those calling themselves mediators to be a CMC member. So the vast majority of mediators working have, have uh, agreed to voluntary regulation, but there is no, I think it's that, that word mandatory or compulsion again, but there is no <laughs> compulsion for them to, to do that. And the way that the CMC has suggested that this works uh, going forward is that in order to conduct a automatically referred mediation, that mediator must be registered with the CMC. So it effectively closes that loop. But it remains a system of voluntary regulation because unless you're doing the automatically referred work, you don't have to be regulated. But we hope that uh, as as the MOJ encourages more mediation and as the automatic referrals become uh, more, that more and more mediators will see the benefit of submitting to the voluntary regulation. And maybe just to be clear, I mean, the elements of regulation are part of the 
the CMC's regime is you, know, you need to have standards for training providers, right? You need right. to have you know, agreed standards for practicing mediators, which the CMC right. has. And you need to have some form of complaints process, uh, as Ian was saying, to, as, as if a disputant is unhappy with the service that's been provided. So those are, the, for me, the three key, key elements of regulation that need to be in place. Um, and, I, you know, I, I agree with Rebecca, if you're working under an automatic referral, then the party should expect mediators to be part of that regulatory regime. I also agree with Ian that I think in time it will, it will progress and develop probably more rapidly as we envisage. Um, but that, that at least should be the starting point as you've set out, Rebecca. I mean, at the moment, um, it, I mean, mediation is highly skilled, but it's low risk. So when we talk about the number of complaints the CMC sees, we've had 15 complaints over the last three years. Uh, and of those, um, five alive, one was upheld, seven were rejected, and two didn't meet the criteria. It's coming back to this issue of what is the risk that you're trying to um, prevent occurring and how best to achieve that. And the number of complaints is currently very low. Now, if if we go to automatic referral, and particularly for small claims, and we have a lot more litigants in person, then we may find that we have a lot more complaints to the CMC because uh, a disproportionate number of complaints are made by litigants in person. I'm not saying without justification, but that, that is the uh, that is. The, the statistics. So, um, yes, we we are very alive to regulation. But I think what's important to just to emphasise as well is that the regulation at the moment is really robust. Um, it's very detailed. There is a significant amount of voluntary regulation, um, very specific uh, for both the registered training courses and for mediators individually. I just wanted to pick up, we've only got a few minutes left, um, I just wanted to pick up this point that was, is touched on and finally touched on in the in the consultation paper about whether there's a need for a uh, a new national standard um, you know, for, for mediation. Um, you know, and I'm going to lead off on this if you don't mind, but my view is that that's completely unnecessary. It will spend a lot of time navel-gazing um, and uh, also bringing in out, outside consultants who perhaps know less less than those working in the profession. I think we have a pretty, as you said, we really have a pretty robust scheme which is looked at as a good international standard around the world. Um, can it get better? Absolutely. Should we do more work on it? Absolutely. Can we collaboratively, collaboratively as a profession work on it together? I would really hope so, and I think we can because there's been really good dialogue in the last year on this. But that's the way we should go, collaboratively working on this as a profession um, to improve the standards, um, not start again with a blank sheet of paper and spend, you know, years navel-gazing on some national standard which won't add much value. Um, that's my view on that. I don't know whether yeah. you have any other things to well, say. Well, no, I, no I, brought, I, do, I, I agree that the current system is working well for where we are. I think what I'm doing is looking ahead. So, Rebecca, when I said, you know, only 10%, I'm saying you're on your current numbers. You know, if, if automatic referral were to be implemented and there were tens of thousands of mediations, you know, obviously they would the the people servicing those would need to be either brought within the CMC, 
scheme or you would or there would need to be a new a new scheme. And maybe at that point, you know, you then do start to look at um, some sort of national standard uh, benchmarking. Or I know this is one idea that you've been proposing, Rebecca, I don't know if you want to say any more about it, but this idea of, of giving a sort of chartered status to the term mediator. So in the same way as you can't call yourself a solicitor or a barrister unless you're on the roll, um, and you're regulated by the supervising bodies, you, you would not be able to hold yourself out as a mediator unless you were on some kind of a register and therefore regulated by either the CMC or, or whoever it is. And, I, and again, I, I could see us getting to that position much quicker than I thought we would have done uh, prior to the, the developments of the last couple of years. And it would be the final step, I think, in professionalizing mediation. So I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing. Nobody really likes regulation or too much of it. And you can certainly, you know, squash something that was, didn't need, you know, didn't need fixing. But I'm just trying to anticipate what some of the objections would be and what the answers are, um, going back, looking ahead. Some really interesting points there. I think, on the national standard, I completely agree with James. Um, I think the basis for the national standard would be the rules that already exist. Um, and uh, I also think, you know, this is not a we're not in, we're, we're not fitting boilers into people's houses here. Mediation is a flexible process and it's adaptive. For instance, we're going online in the pandemic. How would a national standard deal with that? We need to be agile. We're a young developing profession. And I think a national standard, you'd have to have someone monitoring that, changing it, adapting it. It's a complete new layer of bureaucracy that doesn't need to be there because all that is being done already by the industry. I think coming to the idea of the Royal Charter, um, the point is, is not to make mediation a regulated profession in, in the sense of how barristers and solicitors are regulated. That isn't what we want to do. So the idea of getting the charter is not to achieve that outcome. The CMC is very much behind a voluntary system of regular, the system that already exists. Um, the idea of getting the Royal Charter is um, and, and the idea of getting that was, was something we were exploring before this latest consultation. And it is about messaging to the public as much as anything else about mediation being a valid way to resolve disputes. That it is, um, uh, it, it has its own function, that it is um, a process that's distinct from litigation or arbitration that people are professionally qualified to be mediators. Um, and it's more about that idea of embedding mediation into the public consciousness. And also having some recognition for those of us who are mediators that we are actually a profession uh, and, and that, you know, to bring us mediations grown organically across lots of different disciplines, you know, community, workplace, civil, to try and bring us together under one uh, kind of overarching mediation umbrella. So just picking up maybe this as a final point, you, you mentioned sort of we're talking about the Civil Mediation Council providing, you know, the, the regulated framework. You know, there are other institutions that, that also 
you know, see themselves having a role on that. You know, what 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 are the views on you know possibly having multiple organisations being able to provide some form of you know regulation? The CMC's view is that it would be unhelpful for users for there to be more than one formalised regulating body. And, and if we look at how things are, are going to change, and I, I think I'm really mindful here of Sir Geoffrey Voss's point that the tail shouldn't wag the dog in terms of how we approach um, claims in this country. And I think for a long time, the large commercial uh, claims, whether that's litigation or mediation, have we've kind of filtered from the top down rather than from where the vast majority of claims sit up or whatever, up or down, whichever way you want to, you want to put it. So the CMC's position is that there needs to be a one-stop shop where all civil court users can get information about mediation and access a properly accredited or regulated mediator. Um, and I think, again, that's we haven't got onto that, but accreditation or regulation, that's an interesting terminology question too. And I think that for members of the public, uncertainty over levels of regulation or which bodies are legitimate will be really unhelpful. Um, I also think from a professional perspective, it's very divisive for the mediation profession for there to be different regulators or different lists of mediators, depending, for example, on the value of claims being mediated or the subject matter of the dispute or whether they're in litigation or arbitration. And I think that sends a really difficult message to members of the public and risks creating a two-tiered system where some mediation is prestigious and some is seen as not prestigious. I also think that if you look at adjacent sectors, for example, the work done by solicitors or barristers, there's a massive difference between the type of work done by a solicitor in a city law firm to that done by a smaller high street practice. But they are both regulated by the SRA and the level of regulation is identical. And I think finally, uh, James, on this point, I think there's a really big conceptual issue here in that, I firmly believe, as does the CMC, that there should be separation between the regulation and accreditation and commercial enterprise. So the CMC is a charity existing to promote mediation. It is not a commercial organisation. It doesn't train mediators. It doesn't manage mediation work. Um, CMC is the only organisation currently existing in England and Wales like this. Um, so there's no commercial advantage to the CMC or disadvantage to any other body in the CMC becoming the formalised body for mediators. And I think having a separation between commercial profit and regulation will increase the public's trust in the regulatory organisation. And I think that's really important. Right. Um, anything to add on that point? Just, just that I, I, could, I couldn't agree more um, with everything that, that Rebecca's said. Um, in terms of, you know, accreditation and, and, and regulation, you don't, I mean, there, there was a long-standing ambition, and I don't know whether it still is, to have, you know, one united um, mediation council that covered all the different strands of mediation, um, family, civil, um, workplace, community, you know, uh, because we are the mediation world, you know, has a lot to learn from each other and would be much stronger together. 
I think if that were ultimately to be achieved. So I, I'd be all in favor of, of not separating things out just in the way that Rebecca's described. Yeah, yeah, I also agree. I think having one body um, that's responsible for regulation and, and separating it from those undertaking commercial activities is, is the way to go. And um, that's why CEDA has no interest in being a regulatory body. You know, we were criticized many years, many years ago for trying to ride both horses and it's just not possible. Um, so, you know, we're firmly in letting us, letting us do, ourselves do our thing and let someone else take care of the regulation of the market while contributing as, as a stakeholder. Look, thank you very much. It's been a really rich conversation. Um, well, I'm sure we could carry on for some time. Um, but as, as we all know, this is the beginning of discussions. Thanks both for your time. Uh, and I hope the listeners have enjoyed this podcast. Uh, and there is a masterclass coming up in a, in a week or so's time. So please uh, tune in for that as well. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.